0: We're going to keep grinding through Jordan Peterson's analysis of postmodernism and why it's dangerous to the church. But first, before we do that, we're going to look at an email a listener sent, very good email, uh, just warning us a bit about Dr. Peterson's teachings. My name is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. Okay, so probably should have done this ahead of time. <laughs> um, in case some of you missed it, Dr. Jordan Peterson is not a Christian. He would he would not profess to be a Christian, and I and I should have brought that up because there are some very obvious chinks in his philosophical armor. Uh, and uh, and, a, and an astute listener pointed this out to me, and, and in, in a really good way. I'm kind of glad it happened this way, honestly, because the the way he points it out. It is probably way better than, than I could have pointed it out in the first place. And we're just going to kind of walk through some of this. I'm going to try to break this down for you. For you, this is in layman's terms, radio after all. And so we're going to try to uh, make some of these complex co- uh, concepts a little more accessible to us laymen uh, uh, from this email, and you know, just really try to understand really what's going on here, uh, because again, you know, I'm trying to help you to understand postmodernism. Because I, this is kind of the waters I've swam in. These are the waters you, honestly, swim in, and you and you just don't know it. Um, But I purposefully kind of lived from from this philosophical worldview, and so it's and just it just doesn't make any cogent sense at the end of the day. And you wonder what's going on with this, what's behind it. Well, you know, I finally kind of started to figure this out, especially when I went to Claremont and started to see that you know postmodernism, look, if you want to understand postmodernism, the the first step to understanding it is that it has what we call uh, what we call what they call in in philosophical parlance um, a metanarrative, a grand narrative. It has that. Now they will deny that all day long, but that is simply just not true. In fact, I wonder just practically and even philosophically, if it is possible for a person to not have a, an end goal, uh, what they call in, philosoph- in philosophical terms a telos. Um, and if you have a telos, you know, you must necessarily have a, a grand story, a big story that leads up to that end. See? So it, I think it's humanly impossible to not have some sort of goal in mind uh, when you institute certain philosophies and certain worldviews and, and those ways of thinking. It's just not possible. You have a goal in mind. You have an agenda. See? And once you understand that this is what postmoderns have, they have a goal, they have an agenda, they have a grand narrative, they have a big story that is leading up to this hopeful end. Um, Once you understand that, then then postmodern deconstructionism makes a lot more sense. Because then you understand that deconstructionism is what I call, and this is my term, a language game. Now, that that term itself, as I've been uh, told, and as I know, um, is is a philosophical term in itself. Now, I'm using that term differently because I want you laymen like me on the ground to understand that uh, this language game is, is to conceal the agenda. They use deconstructive language to conceal their ultimate agenda, which is this egalitarian utopia. Which we know is a complete pipe dream. We know that's not true. So what's really behind that? I think it's the it's the quest for power. These people feel out of power, they feel marginalized, disenfranchised, and so therefore they're going to try to create a system and a way in which they can get back in power. And they couch it all in, in all of this the, these language games that's called deconstructionism. And kind of it's a sleight of hand that throws you off the trail of what they're really after. The best example I can give of that is uh, the whole cultural war going on with gender right now. So we've talked about uh, deconstructionism in the past, and you can go listen to those podcasts before. But essentially, deconstructionism takes a binary, like man and woman. And what it does is it takes the traditional hierarchy of that binary. In other words, man is above woman. That's the traditional hierarchy of that binary. And it inverts it and says, nope. Woman is greater than man. Now, have we seen that in our culture? You better believe it. It's called third-wave feminism. came right out of the 60s, right after Derrida introduced this into the academy. And I'm convinced this is precisely what some feminists, some radical feminists, jumped on the bandwagon with and said, hey, this we can take and run with this. Because this is going to put us above men. And then the next move is to, see, this is what the feminists didn't anticipate. They didn't fully understand uh, this whole... You know, idea of deconstructionism what they don't realize is that if you're really going to deconstruct something you've got to you've got to not only invert the binaries you've not only got to flip the hierarchical structure on its head but then you've got to dissolve the the meaning of the terms so the next move is not to just make woman above man but to dissolve the meaning of the terms man and woman have they done that they're getting pretty darn close. They're doing a pretty good darn good job of it in transgenderism, because now we can't identify uh, anybody by those terms anymore. See, they've dissolved those terms, and are they're trying to dissolve those terms? I don't think they're succeeding. I think we're going to I think we're going to stop it in its tracks right here, hopefully. <laughs> um, but they they've dissolved those terms so that we're not no longer living under this cisgendered. Uh, white male hierarchy any longer, but we're living in this egalitarian life. Uh, and really none of that is happening. What's happening is, is we're pl- placing the power in the hands of a few very select individuals who are buying into this worldview. And a lot of people just aren't going for this. I mean, on both sides of the, of the political spectrum, this is, you know, uh, left leaning people, people who would call themselves liberals, even classical liberals, conservatives. Obviously, we're not going for it. Um, Because they see it for what it is. So that's, if you want to understand postmodernism, don't buy into this game that it's this jello that you can't nail to a wall type of philosophy. It's not. It's very simple. It's very concrete. It has a grand story, just like everybody else. There's nothing new under the sun. They haven't invented a new way of thinking and a new way of approaching um, culture, philosophy, religion, politics, anything else. They haven't invented any of that. They've just recycled an old idea and couched it in deconstructionism, this language game that they play in order to achieve power. That's what they've done. And now we want to try to bring this into the church. We, we, we want to adapt the church to this kind of thinking. No, the church is the corrective to this kind of thinking. All right. And so as we go through this email, you're going to see um, that this listener is uh, points out some some very salient points as to as to what's good about Dr. Peterson and what what and also what he's missing. All right, and so that's why I want to go through this. We're gonna we're gonna go through that. and That's gonna take a bit of time, and then we're gonna hopefully get back to Dr. Peterson. Um, we'll just kind of see how things go. Uh, I might anticipate this <laughs> this email maybe taking the whole episode. So you're gonna get, get to listen to me talk a lot, uh, which I know you love my silky smooth voice. But at any rate, uh, let's get to that and uh, and see how it goes. So Chris writes, Hi, Matthew. I just recently started listening to your podcast after finding it through Nathan Rennie. Thank you, Nathan, for the... uh, Yeah, uh, Nathan's really doing a great job taking care of me out there. I appreciate Nathan. He's been on the show before and will be again, I am certain. Chris goes on, I really appreciate what, what I've heard so far, and especially you both speaking up against the soft antinomianism that is so prevalent right now in confessional Lutheranism. I wish people studied natural law and metaphysics more, and this wouldn't be much of an, then this wouldn't be much of an issue. We were, after all, created to do good works, Ephesians 2.10, which is nothing more than God's eternal law for creation or man-specific telos as a, as a part of creation. Now, I want to stop there, uh, because this is a great point that Chris brings out. Uh, actually something that that I've been wrestling with. So, let's go to Ephesians 2:10 and and read that verse right. All right. So, Ephesians 2:10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay. So, some of my antinomian friends like to take this verse and talk about how God predestined us for for good works. That's that's one of the the translations of uh, of the language in Ephesians 2.10 that God, uh, you know, pr- predestined us for good works. And and what the way they take that is that, hey, the good works we're going to do, God has already planned out in advance. It's kind of this fatalism type of idea that what we do in this life has already been predetermined, and those good works are a part of that. So, hey, relax, don't worry about, you know, going out disciplining yourself sacrificing yourself working hard to love and serve your neighbor that all that stuff's just gonna happen it's just it just will happen so just yeah just kind of relax on that you're, you're, you're gonna love your neighbor and your vocation and it's predestined so you don't have to worry about it okay I don't think that's what that passage of scripture is talking about at all and Chris points that out here the works that are predestined for us to do are the Ten Commandments. That's why God's law must be eternal. Because he planned for us to do good works according to the 10 commandments. It wasn't that he predestined before the foundations of the earth that I would study my bible today. No he commanded before the foundations of the earth that i would study that i should be studying my bible today and if i and if i violate that if i go against that i'm going against his predetermined predestined plan for my life see now that <laughs> see that's pretty heavy that's pretty heavy and it's no wonder the antinomians want to reject that because um they, yeah that's that's just really uh, Flamethrower law type of stuff there. That if you neglect God's word according to the third commandment, what does the third commandment say? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. That's what we should be doing on a daily basis. And again, I've said this many times, my friends, that if you you know, if you want to understand postmodernism, you better know your Bible. You better know your Bible. You better know the authentic thing before you can recognize the counterfeit. And so the, the the work that god has predestined for us to do the good work is for us to know his word and to follow it and to believe it that's what he predestined us to do it's not this kind of situation where we're automatons see now you'll hear the the evangelicals kind of decry this like we're not you know we're not puppets god's not forcing us to do things so we have to make a decision for christ Justification is a whole other issue. And that's why it's that's why the proper distinction between law and gospel includes being clear about what you're talking about, what you're speaking about, preaching about, lecturing about when it comes to God's word. If you're talking about justification, then this is something that is completely a work of God for the sake of Christ. He even gives us the faith to believe. He changes our wills. But the confessions teach us, and Holy Scripture is absolutely what's driving this, is that once converted, we have a new will that can either continue to succumb to the desires of our sinful nature, the world and the devil, or we can submit to the commands of God. That's what the Scripture teaches. That's what the confessions teach. And what the Holy Spirit wants to do is to train us and discipline us. What God our Father wants to do is train us and discipline us to better follow His Word. Because when we do, when we follow the commandments, then we become self sacrificial, loving people according to how God has commanded that to be done. So this passage is not about some sort of fatalism or God, you know, kind of. Controlling us like automatons or riding us like a donkey, throw up a red flag. Anytime you see somebody talking about being ridden by Christ, that, that should throw up a red flag and pay very close attention to that person's teaching because they're probably an antinomian. I'm not saying always, but more than likely, when they talk about being ridden by Christ, it's exactly what they're talking about. They're talking about don't worry about disciplining yourself and, and working hard to better yourself as a person, as a Christian. And better follow God's commands. No, no, that 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 that's not sanctification. It you know, God's gonna take care of that. Sanctification is completely a monergistic project. Well, that's not scriptural or confessional either. So so pay attention to that sort of thing. This is one of the tricks they use, and I'm glad Chris is pointing it out here. Uh, let me kind of continue on with this. He says, Like yourself, I'm a layman and only recently converted to confessional lutheranism having found its theology as expressed fully in the book of concord to be the clearest expression of what the bible teaches threading the theological needle if you will now i I love that because that i'm so on board with that i completely resonate with that because while i might have trouble completely explaining what the confession say you know i've got to go with with the with the most likely scenario here and i think Luther and Melanchthon and the boys had this 500 years ago. I, I just I am absolutely convinced of that. After all the nonsense that I've put myself through in this life, um, this is the best expression of it. This this explains the most. It's the most. Uh, uh, it's the, it's the clearest, etc. So, great point by Chris there. But he goes on. I want you to ask. I want to ask you to consider telling your listeners to ex- exercise a bit of caution with Jordan Peterson. Please forgive me if you've already done this in a previous previous episode, which I didn't catch, which I've already said we haven't done. Chris continues, Peterson is such an eloquent speaker, and his efforts into the fight for objective facts in the face of postmodernism, gender-confused sexual revolution, is certainly a breath of fresh air. I was and continue to be very excited to see how his message in these areas are resonating so strongly with certain people. It makes me have hope that some people are still still susceptible to good arguments and logic. Please, Lord, let it be. <laughs> good, good point by Chris there. <laughs> we can, and I think that's true. I think if you're patient with people, that's, that's one thing I've kind of learned over the, even, even over the past year um, is, you know, I, I need to keep my emotions in check. You know, really, <clears throat> I struggle with that because I get so uh, impassioned and up in arms about certain things. And I and my emotions just bleed into everything I do or wear my, you know, I might kind of wear my feelings on a sleeve or heart on a sleeve and that sort of thing. Um and what I found is when I just say when I calm down and I just present the rational arguments, stuff seems to be able to move forward. And so that's something that I need to work on, and I am working on. <laughs> um, and it's and so you know that point is well taken. And 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 the hope is that that people are still susceptible to good arguments and logic. That being said, I dug further into Peterson's output. I stated. I started to come across the fact that a lot of his brilliant ideas are built upon very shaky and dangerous philosophical foundations. In particular, Peterson holds a pragmatic version of truth, which stands in stark contrast to the correspondence theory of truth or other realism's version of truth that traditional classical Christian theology and philosophy are based on. It is so hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that he holds to these views because as he speaks out against the relativism of postmodernism, of postmodern philosophy on the one hand his starting point for the ontological status of truth on the other hand is one that is still based on relativism this is because peterson holds to a pragmatic view of truth where things are only true if they help our survival it's a kind of evolutionary utilitarianism of sorts okay that is the paragraph i loved and let me unpack it for you as best i can um Okay, the, danger, the, the shaky and dangerous philosophical grounds. Okay, so let's talk about pragmatism. Essentially, pragmatism says, if it works, do it. And, and, and more specifically than that, is, is if it helps you survive and thrive, do it. And that's pragmatism. Now, the problem with pragmatism is, is where's the focus? The focus is on you. If it helps you to survive and thrive, do it. Now, what happens when what is helping you to survive and uh, uh, what is helping you to survive and thrive comes in conflict with with what is what uh, might be beneficial to someone else to their survival? So, in other words, a grenade gets thrown. This is this is a perfect example of this. In combat, you have two soldiers, and a grenade gets thrown into their foxhole and the only way that one of them is going to survive is for one of them to jump on the grenade and, and die so the other one can live see that's where pragmatism breaks down and we see this all the time just in our daily interactions i mean i see this all the time on the road when i'm driving my truck i'm like you know i, I have got to get to this place at a certain time otherwise i'm not going to make as much money as this, of this at uh, not uh, not make as much money this week as i wanted to i'm not going to get as many miles in as i was shooting for Uh, But then something happens where I have to give way to somebody else who is also in a hurry. And so what do I do in that situation? Do I do the pragmatic thing, the survival technique? Or do I say, you know what, I'll sacrifice myself because that other person may have the exact same dilemma I have. And my Lord Christ calls me in Holy Scripture to sacrifice myself for the good of others. See, that... That is really, I think, what Chris is pointing out here, and that this is a major problem I have definitely seen in Peterson's understanding of things. It's not just merely pragmatic, and I think that's why he's starting to, to reach out and go to the scriptures because he's starting to see that the pragmatism, you know, sh- you, uh, brazen pragmatism, doesn't work at the end of the day. And, and really, what what causes people to to to, uh, you know, you, you think think of the you, you, your favorite movie hero, you know, what what does that person do? Well, generally speaking, they sacrifice themselves for the good of others. They they put their own interests uh, behind the interests of other people. That that's really the people that we that we hold up in law as heroes. And I think that's a very simple piece that Peterson kind of tends to be missing. Uh, you know, in this sort of thing. And so he says. It's so hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that he holds these views because as he speaks out against the relativism of postmodern philosophy on the one hand, his starting point for the ontological status of truth on the other hand is one that is still based in relativism. Now that is absolutely correct. That is a great point Chris is making here because the reason pragmatism is still relativism is because um in, in uh, so let's let's go truck driving again, right? So in one situation, it might be pragmatic for me to stay in my lane and drive down the road without incident. In another situation, it might be pragmatic for me to um, swerve and hit somebody in order to you know, get, get done what I want to get done. See, pragmatism doesn't work because... If everything else is subjected to what is going to help us survive and thrive, then, then other people are completely left out. And, and you can relativize moral quandaries. It becomes a situation ethic. So in other words, in one situation, it might be moral for me to abstain from having sex with a person that I'm not married to. But in another situation, it might be perfectly moral to have sex with a person that I'm not married to. See? That's where pragmatism takes you it takes you by a case by case-by-case moment by moment situation where you say well what is the most practical thing uh, for the you know for the, for the best outcome here for me see <laughs> and so that's that's kind of the quandary that, that Peterson finds himself in because he's not a Christian he doesn't have a, a, a foundation of truth that tells him hey this is moral no matter what so if you violate this you're immoral it's, it's, a, it's a moral relativism be, uh, because it's based on the, the practical situations. Okay, so that's what Chris is saying there. All right. Let's keep going on here. Um, Alvin plantigas shows that this is false in his famous evolutionary argument against naturalism. In this work, Plantiga's on, on epistemology, he posed the question, is it possible that evolution could have selected an inter- incorrect interpret icon, of reality by our brains okay so what's what's being asked here is that so take evolution is evolution perfect that's really the question that Chris is talking about here that that Plantiga brings up is that okay so we're assigning to evolution the status of God right This, this is what we say about Holy Scripture correct that it's inerrant and infallible biological evolutionists some of them at least I've heard some of them say uh, otherwise, but biological evolutionists for the most part will, will assign that sort of status to the evolutionary process, that it's inerrant and infallible and so whatever we've evolved to has to be right see the, <laughs> see your morals are grounded in something Evolutionists' morals are grounded in the fact that that evolution the evolutionary process is, is inerrant and infallible and so whatever we've evolved to to this point has to be right this is these have to, have to be the morals that's where you get the idea of progressivism see we're progressing towards we're evolving toward the ideal and so whatever was before that can't be right because that was you know that was way back you know something 500 2000 years ago 10,000 years ago that can't possibly be right because we were so unevolved then. We were way, you know. That's that's regressive. We don't want to go back there. We want to keep to. We want to continue to progress, right? Because evolution tells us that as we go through life, that we will get better and better uh, because of the evolutionary process. Well, <clears throat> this is what Plantiga is challenging and what Chris is putting out here. Um, he goes on. This would be the case if we held a false notion of reality that still would have somehow aided in our survival. This would lead us to the necessary conclusion that if naturalism is true, we have no way to know if we believe anything that is true, as evolution could have selected for our senses to be completely wrong about reality. See, that's that's exactly what Pl- Plantinga is pointing out. I'm glad Chris brought this up because this is a great point. That Who's to say that evolution has... Um, have has selected us to know what is reality. There there's no way to 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 really know for sure that that's true and in fact there's a lot of evidence to show that that um we're not evolving. In fact, we're probably getting worse. Um you know the law of entropy is probably more uh applicable at this point. Um anyway, Plantiga demis- demonstrates with this, with an analogy about people and tigers. This is pretty funny. So I'll read it. Perhaps Paul very much likes the idea of being eaten, but when he sees a tiger, always runs off looking for a better prospect because he thinks it's unlikely that the tiger he sees will eat him. This will get his body parts in the right place so far as survival is concerned without involving much, by the way, of true belief. Or perhaps he thinks the tiger is a large, friendly, cuddly pussycat and wants to pet it, but he also believes the best way to pet it is to run away from it. Clearly, there are a number of belief-cum-desire systems that equally fit a given bit of behavior. Now, that's just a very funny way to say, look, um, biological evolution... Is not inerrant and infallible, and and to base a worldview off of it is a very dangerous thing to do. See, all right. So let's continue on here. I would highly recommend listening to Peterson's two appearances, first and second, on Sam Harris's Waking Up podcast. Here, these two get deep into it. And Peterson's shaky philosophical foundations really start to show through. Um, I've listened to the first one of those. I haven't listened to the second one, so I'm going to have to go listen to the second one. But the first one was just, I mean, it, it was dizzying listening to these two guys go at it. And I, I think it's important that Chris points this out because I agree. I think I, Because when I was listening to that, I'm like, Pe- Peterson is missing something here, and Harris is just hammering him, hammering him with it. If you don't know, Sam Harris is an atheist. All right, and so Peterson and Harris are are trying to get together on this whole thing because they both agree that basically what's going on with postmodernism is bad, but nobody knows what the solution is to it. Well, we know what the solution is to it. It's Holy Scripture, all right? I mean, that's what really, I mean, think about this. Look, we've got all this sexual uh, you know, assault and uh, um, you know, these sorts of things going on in our politics. You know what the solution to that is? The sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Don't make sexual advances on someone you're not married to. That, I mean, that that worked for a long time. Just and if you do, then you've done something wrong. We used to say this. Now we don't know where the line is. All right. So, um, so that's really the solution. to All this, but Harrison and you know Harrison, who is a uh, uh, an atheist, and and um, and Peterson, who is a psychologist. And bases his philosophy on evolutionary biology. um, You know they can't they can't quite get there, but Peterson is creeping up to that. But but, uh, uh, Chris is going to mention that here. So, but let's continue. Secondly, Peterson does some truly excellent work in getting young people to examine their lives, think about where they want to be in life, and create a plan to get it. However, when he gets philosophical in this area, he begins to show his Nietzschean influence. Now, we talked a little bit about. A little bit about this uh, last week about how he's influenced by Nietzsche, uh, but let's let Chris talk about this as well. This also ties in with his pragmatic theory of truth, as he said that as he says that as Nietzsche and society declared God is dead, we need, we realized we needed to replace God's moral commands w- on us with something. One replacement idea is that of nihilism. Okay, now let me stop there. Nihilism is the idea that this is all leading nowhere that morals don't matter life doesn't matter it's all meaningless we are just you know this this is really where evolutionary biology if you buy into that worldview takes you at the end of the day you cannot there is no foundation for meaning you cannot logically assert a meaning for life at all or any kind of morals thereof that's nihilism that's we're just biological creatures, and hey, we just happen to be here, and that's about the end of it. There's nothing beyond that. Okay. Okay, so Chris says, one replacement idea is that of nihilism, which gave us the danger of a loss of morality altogether, which I just said. Another replacement idea was to replace God with government, which the awful effects of could be seen in the rise of the 20th century totalitarian states. So they tried that. See, this is one thing that that Peterson points out in his lecture. that we've we've been covering uh, the past several weeks is that is that trying to make the government God results in some very very bad results Nazism Communist Russia Communist China Vietnam untold millions of people dead because of this notion of making government God. Very, very bad idea. Tried the experiment. Didn't work. Let's go on to something else. Peterson's answer then. It is the Nietzsche. Uh, Übermensch. Übermensch. My German is non-existent. The idea of the divine individual. Okay, so. This is great. I, I love this email. So so fantastic. Um, just thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, Chris, for sending this to me. Um, okay, so here's what happened. So we we we, we killed God and, and I think Peterson rightly points out, as we said last week, that when we kill God, the blood is going to run in the streets because we're going to try to replace it with government. And and, and Nietzsche was very prescient in, in predicting this, right? Because that's exactly what happened. Untold millions dead. The gulags. Uh you know the, the concentration camps i you know it's just even sickening to to mention those things because of how many people suffered and died because we tried to make government god um <laughs> and so so nietzsche was was prescient in that in in that sense but then who but then who should be god the individual and, and while um we're pushing toward this this egalitarian utopia, this this collectivism that we hope will work out, um, isn't it interesting that postmodern postmoderns are so bent on autonomy that 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 nothing can confine them, confine their individuality, that the individual becomes god. Now, where is that led? Millions dead in abortion, right? Because because if you have a child at a, at a you know. A, at a time that's untimely for you doesn't just doesn't work for you because you've got career plans, you're not married, you don't have to you know, you just kill it. Because you're 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 an autonomous being. You you have uh you have been made god. And that's the results. And and see that's and so well you, you might say, "Well, that doesn't make any sense, Matt, because you're you're talking about you know, the postmoderns want this collective egalitarian utopia. Well, that's what they say they want. But at the end of the day, what they want is power. And they want power consolidated. And they want power consolidated in the individual. And not only that, they want power consolidated in a few individuals. See? Because power can't be consolidated. Not one individual can have all the power. It has to be consolidated in a few individuals. So so the so all that to say that the idea of man becoming god is a bad idea. Leads to bad results. Just like government becoming god. All right. So now Derrida comes along, right? And what he says is that is that god is dead. Government government as god is dead. The individual is dead and now um the text is god, right? Because we're, we're always trying to chase down See, that's the thing it, And that's what the sleight of hand of most postmodern post postmodernism is Is that they say the text is God And they say, hey, all you people Go over there and start chasing that text Because that is what's going to rule you Because you'll never be able to define anything in it Because even a single word has an infinite number of interpretations And you'll never be able to pin it down So you go chase that God Meanwhile, we're over here consolidating our power. See? I think that's precisely what's going on. Alright, so it's good points here by Chris. Um, he says that Jesus was really... Uh, Peterson, he's referring to Peterson here. He says that Jesus was really just one of these divine individuals, a person who did good for the sake of uh, its pragmatic outcomes for society. Okay, now that's a strong point and a point I've missed. I did This I didn't see. Um, because... Peterson may be buying into the notion that the individual is divine. And that's a bad idea, man. Real bad idea. Like he would say. He always says, man. It's a real real bad idea. That's terrible. It's a bad idea, man. It really is. Uh, because I think I think it leads to some really horrific outcomes. Uh because because we need to recognize the true God and not just take hey, oh, here's Jesus as the example of Nietzsche's Superman, that's not that's a really bad idea, and, and uh, we don't want to go that route <laughs> uh, because um, because it does it doesn't lead to, to pragmatic outcomes for society. It leads to pragmatic outcomes for individuals. See, and that won't work. As we said, um, you know it's it, it might be pragmatic for me to to wreck every car off the road that I'm driving my truck down so I can get to where I'm going, but that's not very pragmatic for everybody who I just killed. See, that's 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 a bad move. All right. Um, Chris goes on. This amounts to nothing less than a form of pragmatic utilitarianism. Okay, again, the idea that, hey, if it works, use it. Utilitarianism means just you're using something. You're making use of it. So if it works, use it. If it doesn't, discard it. Form of uh, of this pragma- pragmatic utilitarianism, which is also another way to self justify rather than doing things because it is com- it is a command of God, to try and fulfill the natural order, tell us natural law that God created is to be a part of. Okay, exactly, S- friends. Newsflash, news flash. This this is something that I I I think I've just recently got my head around. If God commands God commands something in Scripture and you don't understand why God commands it it, doesn't matter. Obey it. Obey it. Doesn't matter if you understand it or not. God understands, and if we say that that we fear fear love and trust in God, above all things, as the first commandment teaches us, then whatever He commands, we do, without question. I mean, it's fine to question. It's fine to say, well, what why does God command this? I want you know, let's explore that a little bit. Maybe we could you know, create some arguments about you know why com- why God commands this thing. Why does God forbid homosexual practice? We can explore that, and we we can explain that to people. But but in the meantime, if we don't understand why, and we can't explain why, it's better to follow the commands. Much better for you. You may not understand why God forbids murder, but you ought to follow that command, even if you don't understand it or feel like following it. Okay, that's the point Chris is making here. Okay, he goes on to, to, to conclude here. Peterson also then thinks that religion can be true insofar as, as it gives us a reason to be moral, not because it is true in and of itself. Now, that's an important point. And, and I'm just going to let Chris kind of go on here because I think he, he kind of clears this up and makes the same point I'm fixing to make. So let me just read on here. Finally, and I think much more a uh, much more obvious concern is that Peterson is constantly psychologizing the Bible. That's true. Once again, he is actually using the postmodern methods of deconstruction in coming up with naturalistic readings of the Bible. He doesn't think these stories are literally true. He thinks they are psychologically and pragmatically true. I think the fact that you can read through the uh, comment sections of any one of Peterson's Biblical Series videos and see atheists commenting that they are finally getting Christianity and they now want to call themselves Christian. Atheists simply is evidence of this, and I think that's a strong point. Um, I, and Well, and yeah, let me read on here because I, because Chris is going to make this point. Please don't get me wrong. I like Dr. Peterson. I enjoy listening to him, and I think he's doing very helpful work in the realm of social ethics. I do think that if we are presenting his uh, views to fellow Christians who may not have as an extensive of a background in philosophy, especially we may need to warn them of some of the real dangers of Peterson's teachings as well. He is so articulate, and it is obvious that he is able to persuade many people who don't know better of uh, on some of his philosophical errors. That That's true also genu- genuinely think... This is the part I wanted to get to. I also genu- genuinely think that Dr. Peterson is seeking for truth and feels the pull of Christianity. It's very interesting to listen to what Dr. Peterson says when people ask him if he thinks Jesus is really God. I will continue to pray that God gets through to him and shows him the full truth of the gospel. Now, that is great. That I am so on board with that because I think while... while I think I see. That's what I see. Doctor Peterson struggling with. He is struggling with these issues. He's tr- really trying to find answers, genuinely, and uh, and he's and he's run up against roadblocks. Um, again, like we said last week, one of the ways we know things is it is through um, is through nature, but but nature can only carry you so far. It it can't get you the whole way there, and, and I think that's what Doctor Peterson is 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 running up against. He's starting to understand that, you know, that that natural revelation can only get you part of the way there, and so he's he's starting to turn to sacred texts, and and I, and I see him trending this way, and and I think Chris is is apt to point this out, and that's good. Um, and so and the hope is, and I pray the same thing that, that Dr. Peterson sees this. Now he he's got a whole boatload of stuff to deal with if, if he ever does decide that Christianity has the goods on this. I mean, that's gonna be really interesting. You know, in the meantime, Christians be cautioned, okay? Understand that he's got some problems. If you listen to his biblical lectures, always and again, this goes for anything you listen to. Listen with a discerning ear. Know your Bible. A lot of what Peterson brings out from the scriptures is good and right uh, some of it just like Chris says he psychologizes it you know it's it's nothing it's not something that happened in space and time and is and is true in and of itself it's a tool it's it's utilitarian for dr Peterson okay so anyway that I that was a great email I spent 40 minutes talking about it and we're only going to spend a little little bit more time with dr Peterson and uh, we probably should move on from that because you people are probably getting sick of me talking this heavy philosophy stuff, and we should just get back to a good old fashioned sermon critique here at some point. Uh, but, but I, 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 that was great, and I so appreciate Chris sending this. And um, just was it was a very timely because this was this was something that needed to be done. Just understanding that Dr. Peterson is on our side insofar far he as as he is critiquing postmodernism. That's where the help is. And that's what we should appeal to him for. But always with caution, listen to him. Always understand he's not a Christian. Not a Christian. He is an evolutionary biologist who who has uh, his uh, work in psychology. All right? You have to understand that. But he is seeking for truth, and uh, it should be interesting to see where he goes with it. Okay, let's see if we can get a little Dr. Peterson in this week, and then we're going to leave him behind uh, for now. (laughs)
1: We use category structures to constrain that infinite number of interpretations. Because the basic narrative is oppressor versus oppressed, we choose those narratives that serve our function as oppressors. So it's deeply cynical, but credible. You know, and you can say, if you're not naive, that people are motivated by power. And that our interpretations of the world can be self-serving. I mean, we do want to serve ourselves, after all, because otherwise we die. And so, and we are centered in one place, and so we can't see everything, and we're biased. So, so there is the probability that the way that we look at the world will be tainted by narrow self-interest. And maybe even tainted by in-group interests beyond narrow individual self-interest and we know this is true but it's also not all bad you know like we a good person takes care of his or her family well, what does that mean it means you prefer your family to outsiders we are going to get rid of that it's a form of prejudice like it really is like your choice of sexual partner is a form of prejudice right i mean maybe it should be distributed in an egalitarian manner hey <laughs> That would be a lot funnier if it isn't a possibility. Like in, 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 in Huxley's Brave New World, that was the rule. You, you shared yourself with whoever asked because it was rude not to. And you know what? It is actually rude not to. It's seriously rude. Now, is that something you want to take away from people? You want that to be distributed in an egalitarian fashion?
0: Okay, so let me just stop there and, and tell you what he's talking about. He's talking about um, who you're going to engage in sexual congress with, and what he's proposing is that postmodernism would suggest that it would be rude and prejudicial for you to withhold sex from anybody that wanted to engage in, in, in sexual activity with you. That's pretty, <laughs> right. Because you're you're being prejudiced. You're you're prejudging the person. You're saying, you know, uh, you're a woman. You see a guy in a bar, and he's a creep, and he's ugly, and he's not a nice guy, and he's being belligerent. Of course, you're gonna run away from that guy. You are gonna prejudge him. You're gonna be prejudiced See. But postmodernism says, no, no, no. prejudice is bad at all costs. Discrimination. Terrible. That's a terrible. Word. Like prejudice and discrimination are like the two unpardonable sins in our culture. But folks, we prejudge and we discriminate all the time. If I see somebody, if I'm driving again, a lot of truck driver analogies this week. If I'm driving down the road and I see some guy past me who's looking straight down at his cell phone, I'm gonna prejudge and be cautious that he might crash into me and die. I mean, he's not going to kill me. I'm in a gigantic truck. He's going to die. And so in order to spare his life, I'm going to prejudge him and say he's an idiot, and I'm going to kind of be cautious around him. See, we make these kinds of judgments all the time. And so to carte blanche say that prejudice and discrimination are always bad is not true. Prejudice and discrimination based on certain things like skin color are bad, very bad. Terrible, in fact, and that's the kind of things we want to we want to eliminate. But prejudice and discrimination, we don't want to eliminate that altogether. And that's and that's what uh, Doctor Peterson is saying here. And again, the point is, um, this is not the sort of thing we want to import into the church, because we want to be able to prejudge, and discriminate with people, and to say, hey, this behavior that you're that you're engaging in. Is not good for this church community. It's not good for me as, as an individual, whatever. We want to be able to say that to people, A, because we care about them. We don't we don't want to see them do destructive things to themselves. And B, we don't want to see them do destructive things to our churches. We, we want to be able to have this power. Otherwise, um, otherwise, stuff's going to spin off into chaos pretty quick. Okay, let's keep going.
1: How prejudiced are you when you choose someone to sleep with?
0: You choose that
1: person and not everyone else. It's the ultimate in prejudice. You say, well, that's not prejudicial. Oh, yes, it is. You usually go for the most attractive partner you can find. You usually go for the healthiest partner. You you go for the best person you can find who can tolerate you. (laughs) It's prejudicial in, in every possible way. So... Well, so, okay, so you're self-serving, and you construct a view of the world that serves those self-serving causes, and some of that has to do with power. Fair enough. That doesn't mean it all has to do with power, though. It means that some of it has to do with power. It's like racism. People are kind of racist. Or maybe people prefer their in-group. It's not that easy. Or maybe people prefer the familiar to the novel. You know, that IAT that the social psychologists have come up with, implicit association test that measures unconscious bias. We don't know what the hell that measures. The people who invented that bloody thing, they know we don't know what it measures. They know it's not reliable. They know it's not valid enough to be used as an individual diagnostic instrument. That's technically the case. They also know that you can't train people out of their unconscious biases. Because there is not much difference between unconscious bias and instantaneous perception. But they don't really care. I've I've written to Mazarin Banaji, who's one of the inventors of the IET, several times saying, how about you come out in public and say what you already know, which is that people are misusing your damn test. Silence. Well, that's partly because her discipline, social psychology, is a corrupt discipline, as the social psychologists have discovered over the last four years, and be turning themselves inside out, trying to rectify, which they haven't. Anyways, we're giving the devil his due. There's an infinite number of interpretations of the world, and it's highly probable that you'll lay a self-serving one on top of it. Yes, and also that it'll serve the interests of your group, however you define that. Yes, but it only accounts for a fraction of your behavior. There's all sorts of other things at work as well. And you don't get to reduce all human motivations to one motivation, power. And then you might also ask, well, why would you want to reduce all human motivations to power? It's so you can use power. That's why. You can justify the use of power. That's force. You don't have to engage in civilized debate. You don't have to give a damn about the facts, especially if you're not a postmodernist, because you don't believe in facts anyways.
0: Okay, so that's that's an important point and something I've been driving towards is, you know, so, you know, while I try to be generous to postmoderns, that that uh, I think the even even most of the hardcore ones think they are are driving toward this egalitarian utopia. Um, The ones that really know what's going on are after power. They are no question about it and again i'm going to keep circling this back to why ever would we want to adapt the church to this the church should be preaching against this unequivocally without shame and say i mean dr peterson is you know is is really doing the church's yeoman work here in some ways and now, again, we gave, we gave all the warnings and that sort of thing beforehand. But th- this is the kind of uh, clarion call that the church should be sending against, uh, against this philosophy when we see it. See? Because uh, this leads to some, some really bad consequences. And we should be condemning it uh, you know, as, a, as a damnable worldview, uh, no question.
1: You might ask, well, why don't you? Hey, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Postmodernists don't believe in facts. They believe that the idea of fact is part of the power game that's played by the white-dominated male patriarchy to impose the tyrannical structure of the patriarchy on the oppressors. It's like, I'm not making this stuff up. It's embedded right in the theory. All you have to do is read it, and you find this out. So they don't believe in facts. Well, facts would constrain the use of power. At least that's how it looks to me.
0: Okay, so let me just bring this out of of the theory into practice. Um, I had a friend once, and we were talking about homosexuality. And I said, essentially, so would you consider yourself to be a tolerant person? And he said, of course, yes, I'm very tolerant. Okay, fine. I said, would you tolerate someone... Who had the opinion that homosexuality is immoral, and his answer was no. And I found that really fascinating because he said he said he said he basically asked me is this is this opinion is this your opinion and I said yes of course it's my opinion. And he said, okay, well, the reason that I would not tolerate that opinion is because you come from the privileged class. You're white, heterosexual male. Therefore, your, your privileged class cannot be tolerated. I said, but wait a minute. I thought you said you were tolerant. He's, he said, yeah, but I can't tolerate you and blah, blah, blah. See, See how that works? It's, it's a power play And I'm, and I'm fairly well convinced my, my friend didn't know He was involved in, in this sort of power play But really that's the idea Is that um, Is that facts don't really matter Definition of terms These sorts of things Right? Okay, let's continue on
1: Okay, so fine We gave the devil his due There's an infinite number of interpretations And you're likely to use biased compression algorithms on the world, and they're likely to be biased in your favor True But Only partly true And the difference between an ideologue and a thinker is that a thinker knows the difference between things that are only partly true And things that are completely true Things are complicated. Like, I like to think everything is as complicated as a military helicopter. You have to, like, I think it's eight hours of maintenance to keep those things in the air for one hour. Because they don't fly. They're rocks. They plummet. It's really hard to keep them in the air. And they're full of parts. And and if you don't know all those parts, you don't go in there and monkey about with them. Because you just wreck it. And that's just a helicopter. Like, everything is way more complicated than a
0: helicopter, so you don't just... Okay, so that is a really strong point there. See, you don't go monkeying around with a military helicopter when you don't know what you're doing. And that is precisely the analogy I would place on people who think that they can define everything. They can give us this metaphysic, which again, as I pointed out in the outset, postmodernism does. And you're naive if you think that postmodernism does not give us a metaphysic and an end goal, a telos, and a grand narrative, a meta-narrative. You're, you're naive if you think that's the case. Because they do. And they're giving us a grand narrative that has monkeyed with literally millennia of human history that says... That marriage really doesn't have a definition. That the definition of man and woman is really not that clear. See, you don't go monkeying around with stuff when you don't know what you're talking about. And and they've done this largely with Christianity. Western Christianity. And they've done it without being serious students of theology or the scriptures ever. And we want to adapt our churches so that we can be more appealing to these people who are monkeying with literally all of human history. That's the point Dr. Peterson is pointing out here. And I want to leave you with that. That they are monkeying. It's just like, I don't know, a number of months ago, I told you a story about me leaving my cell phone with my children and I said if there's an emergency use the phone and they saw a big rat in the house and instead of calling me and saying dad there's a big rat in the house using the phone the way it was meant to be used they destroyed my phone and tried to turn it into a mouse trap. see that's what postmodernism does to Christianity western culture these sorts of things And it cannot be adapted in the church. It has to be resisted. Okay, hopefully this was helpful. Thanks again, Chris, for the email. And hey, we're going into our fifth year here. Yeah, Um, year four is Thanksgiving is our anniversary, actually. So every Thanksgiving, I kind of think about these things. Um, We've done four years and we're going to our fifth year. So uh, go us. Yay. All right, we'll see you next week. Hey,
1: preacher man. It brings salvation to those who believe Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel Tell me I'm a sinner and Christ died for me I don't want to know about what you did last week on your summer vacation What you saw, where you went, or how much it cost Instead, won't you tell me all the words that give me salvation
0: how he lived and how we died